Hey, you listen to podcasts. Can I assume you like audiobooks as well? And if so, can I please hope you're not a member of Audible.com yet? I've been a member for over 10 years, and now I've joined their affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial and support Bionic Planet by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet is one word with no dots, dashes, or spaces because the system doesn't seem to accept those. And you can support me by signing up and checking out their services. It might even work if you're a member. I don't think it does, but give it a try. They've got over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Donuts, deodorant, buns, and burgers. They're killing us, and not just because of what they do to our bodies. No, it's because of what the soy, beef, and palm oil that they're made of and the paper they're packaged in do to the environment. More specifically, it's because of the way we get these commodities, by chopping or degrading forests, which is one reason the tropical forests now emit more greenhouse gases than they absorb. This according to a study published last month in the journal Science. But what if I told you we could end this by 2020, just two years from now? I'm not saying we can end all deforestation by 2020, but what if I told you we can purge deforestation from the supply chains of these four commodities, the ones that drive most of the world's deforestation, by ramping up 10 activities that we're already engaged in and have been engaged in for decades? that these activities are time-tested and they're lined up like dominoes ready to be activated. Would you believe me? I hope so, because that's exactly what I'm saying. And it's not just me saying this. It's more than 250 economists, ecologists, and agronomists from around the world, and they're drawing on the experience of environmental NGOs and small farming communities from Africa to Asia to Latin America as well as the big agribusinesses who are, quite frankly, the critical actors in all of this. Today we're looking at these 10 activities, how they fit into 100 more activities that are getting a lot more attention these days, as well as where they came from, why they work, and how you can learn more about them. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And nowhere is that impact more deeply felt than in the forests, farms, and fields 
that recycle our air and provide our food. Today we're looking at lists, two of them to be specific. One involves 100 solutions that can not only slow climate change, but end it and even reverse it. The other involves 10 activities that can accelerate a cluster of the big 100. In between our examination of these two lists, you're going to have to sit through a little history class because you won't understand where we're at or where we're headed if you don't understand where we came from and how we got here. I'm opening today's show with a book review of sorts, a very short one like the ones that Sister Marianne used to ask us to deliver in her English class at Christ the King School in Chicago. It compares and contrasts two bestsellers related to climate change. One is called Drawdown, and it's a recipe book of sorts for saving the planet. I love this book. The other is called This Changes Everything. It came out a few years ago, became a bestseller, and it's a mess. I hate it even though it's more entertaining than the first. What I love about Drawdown, which is edited by environmentalist and entrepreneur Paul Hawken, is that it focuses on concrete, doable ways of fixing the mess. Specifically, it summarizes 100 solutions that can not only slow climate change, but add it up together, end it, and even reverse it. Of these 180 already exist and are even being implemented, while 20 are listed as coming attractions. Hawken categorizes about a quarter of the solutions under either food or land use, and they include things like green agriculture, forest protection, and indigenous peoples' land management, all of which I cover in this podcast. What I hate about This Changes Everything, that's Naomi Klein's book, is that it's shrill, sloppy, and dismissive of workable solutions. Its basic story arc is this. Gee, I just realized this climate stuff is serious, and so I spent a couple years investigating it, and I found that all of the so-called solutions out there only fix part of the problem. None of them fix the whole thing. We need something radical, a total reset of human nature, and I'm just the person to tell you how to do it, and it involves the post office. Now, on the one hand, in writing the book, Naomi Klein sounded the alarm, which is great, and she even pointed out that we need to radically alter the way we run our economy, which is true. But then she dismissed anything that isn't a magic bullet, like the ones that kill vampires. Or is it werewolves? I always forget. Anyway, in either way, she ends up floating a solution that's just as imaginary as those two creatures, but climate change is a very real threat. And she doesn't just ignore, but actively disses and dismisses solutions to that threat, like the ones that Hawken highlights in his book. Now, I do get the Daniel Burnham aspect of this. He's the Chicago architect who said, and I quote, Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood, and probably themselves will not be realized. So I can see why Klein, and in fact most mainstream writers, steer clear of wonky, tedious solutions. They're boring and seem like little incremental things, but our job as reporters isn't just to entertain, it's to act as a kind of scout, 
going out into the wilderness, seeing what's happening there, what the threats are, how to avoid them, and then reporting back in a way that's clear, concise, and hopefully motivational. I'm excited about Drawdown for two reasons. First, because it is clear, it is concise, and it is motivational. And second, because it's become a bestseller. And it should, because these wonky, tedious solutions aren't little. Each is massive in its own right, and Drawdown looks at 100 of them. What's more, the book's goal isn't just to slow climate change, but to actually end it and reverse it. If that doesn't stir your heart, I don't know what will. And on that note, I'd like to share with you the second half of that quote, which we almost never hear. It goes like this. Make big plans, says Burnham. Aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble, logical diagram, once recorded, will never die. But long after we are gone, will be a living thing, asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. Remember that our sons and grandsons are going to do things that would stagger us. Let your watchword be order and your beacon beauty. Nothing there about being simple and pithy, and the emerging solutions to the climate challenge are not always simple, but they are noble, logical, orderly, and beautiful. The Paris Agreement, for example, is a masterwork of diplomacy, a massive mosaic of thousands of smaller agreements that respect every country and culture on the planet. Likewise, the solutions I'll be examining today emerge from diverse sectors and societies, yet they all fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, and they're also integral to the success of the Paris Agreement. I'm focusing mostly on the corporate sector because that's where we need to focus our attention if we're going to fix this mess. The 10 solutions we'll be examining in the final segment come from a group called Tropical Forest Alliance 2020. So, what is Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, and how does it influence corporate activities? Stick around to find out. We're basically a platform for public-private collaboration around the issue of commodity-driven deforestation. That's Marco Albani. He runs Tropical Forest Alliance 2020. This is an alliance that was created originally by the U.S. government working with the Consumer Goods Forum, which is our co-host for this event, which is an umbrella organization of over 400 companies. We're going to be focusing on two organizations today, and the Consumer Goods Forum is one of them. It's a coalition of CEOs and top managers from more than 400 retailers, manufacturers, and service providers in 70 countries. It coalesced in 2009, but traces its origin to the aftermath of World War I, when French food merchants were beginning to engage in international commerce again and needed to know that they were getting good stuff. But they soon learned that the war to end all wars achieved nothing of the kind, and it wasn't until 1953 that the International Committee of Food Chains was born. This was a commercial enterprise focused on making sure farmers in faraway places were delivering good food to merchants and shopkeepers closer to home. But the parameters of quality control gradually expanded to include labor conditions and environmental impact. By the 1990s, environmental pressure groups had forced the creation of certification standards for the sustainable production of palm oil and timber and pulp. 
while other industry groups emerged to promote general food safety. Then, in 2009, just as climate negotiators were gathering for year-end talks in Copenhagen, Denmark, three of these industry groups, the Global Commerce Initiative, the Global CEO Forum, and the International Committee of Food Chains, merged into the Consumer Goods Forum, which is dedicated to promoting fair labor and environmental practices among companies whose sales add up to a staggering $3.5 trillion per year. Now, I'm not so naive as to believe that these companies are all selfless and beneficent. In fact, I'm pretty sure many of them are selfish and sociopathic. But there are ways of changing that, and these multilateral organizations are one. In fact, research from the Forest Trends Supply Change Initiative shows companies that belong to organizations like the Consumer Goods Forum not only make more environmental commitments than companies that don't, but they're also much better at at least reporting progress towards delivering on those commitments, which is why this matters. And in 2010, the Consumer Good Forums passed a resolution that they would end deforestation in their supply chains for beef, soy, paper and pulp, and palm oil by 2020. Beef, soy, palm oil, and pulp and paper. There they are again, the big four commodities responsible for most of the world's deforestation because farmers around the world are chopping forests to grow them. So it's a pretty big deal when 400 companies line up behind a specific pledge to end that. But of course, that doesn't solve the problem. Just as the Kyoto Protocol showed us that government can't do this on its own, common sense tells us that the global profit-driven corporate sector isn't going to fix our problems on its own either, despite what free market fundamentalists like to believe. We need government, we need NGOs, we need indigenous groups, we need them all working together. So in 2012, the Consumer Goods Forum and the U.S. government launched the group we're primarily focusing on today, Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, or TFA 2020, to get all of these sectors working towards the goal of changing the way we produce the big four deforestation commodities so that by the year 2020, we no longer chop forests to do so. And since then it has grown. We have now over 100 partners. It's a multi-stakeholder alliance, multi-stakeholder platform. It does have government, both uh, con uh, consumer governments and tropical forest governments. It has uh, business, both producers, all the way up to uh, companies that uh, run plantations or the first buyers from, from farmers, to uh, processors, co uh, consumer packaged good companies, and then retailers and has civil society. Civil society, indigenous people organizations, uh, environmental NGOs, uh, labor, and so on. So, where are we now? You've got the Consumer Goods Forum representing business, and you've got Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, or TFA 2020, representing all of these diverse interests. Then, in 2014, as climate negotiators are gearing up for the Lima climate talks, things get serious. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon holds a massive rally in New York designed to turbocharge TFA 2020's mission. The result is something called the New York Declaration on Forests, which is a pledge 
to cut the global rate of deforestation in half by 2020 and to end deforestation by 2030 while restoring hundreds of millions of acres of degraded land. The pledge is endorsed by 36 national governments, 20 subnational governments, meaning states and cities, 15 indigenous organizations, 53 environmental NGOs, and 52 multinational corporations. And the list of companies is interesting. It includes traditional good actors like Dannon, Unilever, and Kellogg's, but it also includes companies with a reputation for doing the wrong thing, like Asia Pulp and Paper, a longtime environmental pariah once known for grinding pristine forest into pulp. Some of you may, may already know that in the last five years, we've been working really hard to turn our story around, especially uh, to specifically about uh, you know, removing uh, deforestation across our supply chain. That's Dewey Bramono, Asia Pulp and Paper's Director of Sustainability and Stakeholder Engagement, who we'll hear from later in the show. Most of the audio in today's show, by the way, comes from an event that Forest Trends hosted in September during New York Climate Week. And Dewey Bermono's presence in that room is proof that companies can change. The New York Declaration on Forests is a huge deal because you've got all these companies publicly committing to tackle deforestation. And the declaration isn't just a simple statement, but it's actually 10 specific goals that, like all of these 100 solutions and drawdown, feed on and reinforce each other. The challenge is holding these companies to their word. Now we come to 2015. You've got these two global networks and this very public commitment. How do you turn this into action? In part, by getting everyone on the same page. So the governments of the UK and Norway ramped up funding for TFA 2020, and the World Economic Forum essentially adopted it, giving it a place to live in Switzerland. That same year, the organization that I work for, Forest Trends, launched the Supply Change Initiative, that's supply-change.org, to track not just corporate commitments, but the progress that companies report towards achieving their commitments. And you may have noticed that I use them as a resource quite a lot. I encourage you to do so as well. Now we come to last year, 2016. You've got all of these commitments and all of this transparency, and TFA 2020 needs to pull it all together so that we can see how far we are from the goal. They asked a dozen leading NGOs to help out, and they put a research-oriented group called Climate Focus in charge. Then, at last year's climate talks in Marrakesh, they published two reports, one focused on progress towards all 10 of the goals outlined in the New York Declaration on Forests, and one focused exclusively on goal number two, which is the one that says that by 2020, we will no longer be chopping forests to produce the big four deforestation commodities. And the assessment was actually uh, a bit sobering. Specifically, it's a mixed bag. Using supply change data on almost 700 companies, they found less than half of the companies that had made commitments were actually disclosing progress, although those companies that did report progress were usually on track to meet their goals. They also found huge variance from company to company, meaning some great success stories, some shining examples, 
and a lot of lessons learned. There is a forestdeclarations.org. The report is still there. There will be coming an update soon uh, for what's happening the last year, but hasn't changed very much. And the story is one that a lot of progress has been made. And frankly, when people made these commitments almost 10 years ago, they really didn't know what that meant and what, how to operationally get there. Uh, and a lot has been done to actually move ahead in this. And so companies have made commitments, they have created policies, they're implementing these policies and so on. At the same time, there's still a lot that needs to be done. And uh, 2020 is coming up. It's crunch time. And we need to very quickly harvest the lessons of the last eight years to see what works and what doesn't. Then we need to scale up what works and do it fast. So Tropical Forest Alliance 2020 called in Climate Focus again. Remember there, the research-oriented NGO that led the creation of the first two assessments? We started with the New York Declaration Progress Assessment on Goal 2, which was released in November 2016. That's Charlotte Streck, who runs Climate Focus. Then we had a series of workshops, consultations, consultations in electronic form, in person. We met first with a number of, of a multi-stakeholder group in Berlin in December 16. Then we went into a process, a process of analysis. We had a lot of uh, individual... You get the picture. They didn't just pull this out of thin air, but instead they talked to more than 250 organizations, put their findings out for review, adjusted them, and finally presented them in New York. In Brazil and in Ghana. All this is important. It is a result of a collaboration. And as it is, it's, it will never make 100% everybody happy, but it is the agreement among the greatest you know, number of stakeholders what needs to happen. So let's pause again to get our bearings. We started with 100 activities that can reverse climate change, and we dove into one of them, namely ending deforestation, which we realized is part of a cluster of activities related to land use and agriculture. We then found that this cluster was broken into 10 specific goals of its own, enshrined in the New York Declaration on Forests. Then we dove into one of those 10 goals, goal number two, the most immediate one, which is purging deforestation from the big four commodities by the year 2020. And we found it's doable, but it won't be easy. Now, after diving down to this one goal, we're going to open things up again to look at the 10 priority areas that can help us achieve the goal of purging deforestation from these four key commodities in just two years, which will in turn help us achieve the other nine goals in the New York Declaration on Forests, which will in turn help us achieve a few dozen of the 100 activities that will help us reverse climate change. Before we move on, some key points. First, it is not a stepwise approach. We are not suggesting to do one, and then the next one, and then the next one. There is also no priority among the priority areas. What we are saying here is we have to do all of them, and we have to start now. And also, if we do achieve the 2020 goal, the game isn't over. Because the reality of deforestation is that 
is not a thing that when you end it is ended. As long as you have forest, you have the possibility of deforesting. So you have to create the long-term equitable development opportunities that will remove the need for people to clear the forest. I'm about to unveil the 10 priority areas, but first I have a question for you. Do you like this show? Do you think it's worthwhile? Do you think it's useful? Do you think it serves a purpose? If so, would you like more episodes? Maybe better produced to boot with a second set of ears and more time for editing? You can make that possible by giving me a good rating on iTunes or wherever you access the show. You can tell friends about me, or best of all, you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 monthly cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 or whatever. I'm sitting on a ton of material, interviews and audio I gathered as far back as June, and I'm itching to share it with you in ways that make sense. But I've got a day job and I've got to pay the bills too, and I'm not even close to breaking even on the podcast. I like the idea of being listener-supported, but I'm also open to sponsors, advertisers, or investors to cover my costs, hire some help, and scale this up. The website, again, is bionic-planet.com, or you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the 10 priority areas for purging deforestation from the supply chains of the big four deforestation commodities by the year 2020, beginning with... The elimination of illegality from supply chains. So, what does this mean? I'll let Michael Jenkins explain it. He runs Forest Trends, which means he signs my checks. But I think the group does good work, too, which is why I work for them. We did a report a couple of years ago that tried to document illegal conversion. He means illegal conversion of forests to farms or fields. A conservative estimate at the end of this report, when we looked at it globally, was 90% of the commodities, agricultural commodities, coming out of the developing world into Europe and and modern marketplaces, 90% was illegal. Let that sink in for a moment. In fact... Let's hear it again. 90% of the commodities, agricultural commodities, coming out of the developing world into Europe and and modern marketplaces, 90% was illegal. So while we do need better legal frameworks, we also need to enforce the laws already on the books. As Brazil showed when it slashed deforestation 70% between 2004 and 2014. If you listen to episode 20, you heard how good-acting companies can also support enforcement something Charlotte also alluded to. Companies can also, by making data available, support enforcement efforts of governments. Companies that are good with the law can also boost their bottom line by building up trust with importers abroad, as Asia Pulp and Paper is doing in Indonesia. We've been working together with the government of Indonesia, supporting the piloting of the SBLK system, which is the timber legality verification system of Indonesia, um, to make sure that it is robust and it uh, meets all of the requirements of international uh, stakeholders. 
It's the right thing to do, and it certainly can't hurt their status with global buyers. And that brings us to... Growing and strengthening palm oil certification. Palm oil is in everything from donuts to soap to aftershave. You probably use it, but don't even know it. Palm oil is one of the main drivers of deforestation, in particular in Southeast Asia and in West Africa. It is also one of the commodities where, where certification has gained traction. Remember we talked about certification when I was giving you the whole history of how these organizations came together? Supply chain data shows that of the big four commodities, companies are making the most progress in reducing deforestation around two of them, palm oil and timber and pulp, mostly because we started seeing certification of these back in the 1980s. Today, about 21% of palm oil is certified by the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO. The challenge in scaling it up is twofold, getting consumers to pay a premium for this and extending certification to more forests. We don't even have sufficient in demand for the 21% that is certified, but the standards also need to be improved to cover more forest and, um, and prioritize uh, forest areas. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I joined the Audible.com affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial if you're not already a member. If you are a member and log in through audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet, that's bionic planet as a single word, no dots, dashes, or spaces, it may still give me credit, but I'm pretty sure you don't get a discount. Still, if you're a satisfied member, as I've been for over a decade, you're at least getting something you value. One book I've been enjoying and recommending lately is Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst by Robert Sapolsky. It pairs well with Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because both of these books help us understand the precognitive drivers of our prejudices and moral blah-de-blah. Haidt comes at it more from a psychological angle, while Sapolsky comes at it through neuroscience, but they both end up examining the ways that evolution forged the neurological, psychological, whatever pathways that to this day make some of us quiver with anger when someone kneels instead of stands before a symbol of loyalty and the way we viscerally respond to people and situations we don't know much about. Both of these authors are teachers as well as researchers, so they both know how to tell a story, and Haidt actually narrates his. Both of them will help you identify, understand, and purge your own prejudices, and they even offer clues for helping us rescue people who we perceive to be trapped in illogical ideologies. Although you might also end up so thoroughly questioning your own beliefs that you don't know where you stand. Another audiobook I've been surprised to find myself recommending is Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened. I got it first on Kindle because I travel a lot, so that's how I get most of my books. And I realized that it was conversationally enough written for Audible, so I got it there too. Hillary narrates it herself, and she does a great job. If you've read the negative reviews as I had, 
you'll be shocked to read the book. It's incredibly insightful, and it's mostly about policy and how to move forward. Yeah, the last election provides an arc, but how can it not? You can get any one of these audiobooks or anything really in the audio library for free, so there is absolutely no risk at all, and you can support me at the same time by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet, again, without the hyphen. That's audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet for your free audiobook. Then comes the next priority. Scaling up pilot programs for sustainable intensification of cattle grazing. Sustainable intensification of cattle grazing. That basically means raising more cows on the same piece of land so that you don't have to keep chopping forests to graze them. Beef is responsible for more deforestation than palm oil, soy, and pulp and paper combined. In episode 7 of Bionic Planet, we saw how Kenyan farmers are using agroforestry to increase milk production. They plant trees in among their crops to pull nitrogen from the air and infuse it into the soil and they turn the leaves into silage for their cows. That's just one solution, and there are dozens of them. Ideally, we should all eat less beef, but for now, we can reduce the amount of land used to raise the cows we do have. We can satisfy existing and growing demand on a smaller land area. There are pilots, pilots are tested, and they need to be accelerated and scaled up. Which brings us to Sustainably increasing smallholder yields in palm oil and cocoa. Cocoa is not one of the big four, but it's a huge contributor to deforestation, and it's mostly produced by small farmers working in cooperatives. More than 30% of palm oil and more than 90% of cocoa is produced by smallholders. The report shows that small palm oil producers can increase their productivity 85% without chopping more trees. These smallholders lack access to credit, they lack training, and often because of this, they go and mine soil and land to increase yields. This can be changed by systematically improving smallholder yields by providing technical assistance, training, and making available special finance facilities. There is also aggregation of smallholders, all that needs to happen. It's very important, it's essential for the palm oil supply chain and for the cocoa supply chain. So that gets us through three of the big four, plus cocoa, or cacao as the trees themselves are called. Um, so palm oil, okay, yeah, it's reasonably well known. Um, the RSPO is strong, it's growing uh, back in those days, fine. Paper and pulp, we have FSC and PFC, is a relatively developed market. Cattle has a round table uh, on, on sustainable beef, but what about soy? Yes, what about soy? That, by the way, is Ignacio Gavilan, Director of Sustainability for the Consumer Goods Forum. When I ran a little bit of a survey within the membership, I realized that these poor companies had no clue how to calculate how much soy was in their supply chain. Because it's an ingredient, it's embedded, it appears in many different forms, and the only two forms that appears to you as a consumer is soy milk and edamame in your sushi. (laughs) And that brings us to... Achieving sustainable soy production. 
Up until 2006, farmers across the Brazilian Amazon were chopping forests like mad to grow soy. But then something changed. Companies like Cargill, responding to pressure from groups like Greenpeace, voluntarily stopped buying soy from Amazon farmers who chop trees to grow this stuff. The soy moratorium, as it's called, is just one example of a successful multilateral effort to fix the climate mess. It is important that multi-stakeholder initiatives like Moratoria or others are being formed in support of these ecosystems. Certification programs are ridiculously expensive and notoriously difficult to manage. I mean, this is really complex stuff. A company like McDonald's buys beef from slaughterhouses like Marfrig and JBM, and those slaughterhouses buy from thousands of small farmers. To really do this right, we have to scale up. And that's where the next priority area comes in. Accelerating the implementation of jurisdictional programs. Jurisdictional means within the jurisdictional boundaries of a certain government. It can be federal, it can be state, it can be county or even city. If you get an entire state like Sabah in Malaysia or California in the United States to make sure that its farmers are producing fruits and veggies in a sustainable way, companies can buy there without spending a fortune to certify each producer individually. We have screened about 34 of these jurisdictions. They cover significant amount of existing commodity production. That is 10% of the world's beef production, 34% of the world's palm oil production, and 40% of the soy production globally. The state of Sabah in Malaysia, for example, is working with several NGOs that have coalesced into an alliance called Forever Sabah. In 2015, late 2015, the state government endorsed the policy to certify our um, Sabah's palm oil product to RSPO standards by 2025. That's Cynthia Ong, who runs a group called Land Empowerment Animals People, or LEAP. She's also one of Forever Sabah's co-executive directors. And in 2016, we formed the Jurisdiction Certification Steering Committee, which is equal parts government, civil society, and industry. And we worked very hard on a five-year roadmap to get there, uh, which is now being endorsed by the highest level of government. It means institutional change. It means policy change. It means behavioral change. It means getting rid of our various addictions. Even big names like Asia Pulp and Paper have realized they can't access certified material on a large scale one plantation at a time. We learned that we need to work together with uh, various uh, stakeholders. Um, that is why um, we also think that um, jurisdictional approach is important and we have started those um, uh, activities. Uh, we begin with two uh, provinces in Indonesia. One is in South Sumatra and another one is in uh, West Kalimantan. We work closely with the governors. Um, their role is to help us in uh, you know, identifying uh, other uh, partners on the ground and also uh, identifying what kind of other activities uh, is being done in terms of conservation within those landscapes so that we can coordinate our activities um, reduce uh, you know, um, overlap of actions and also uh, uh, increase the efficiency of all the um, available resources for conservation. And we've seen benefits in that. Uh, we've had uh, improvement in terms of coordination amongst the various players, and we've also identified partners on the ground. There are scores of efforts underway. The Rainforest Alliance is also doing great work, which you can learn about if you listen to episode 23. 
That episode will have the raw audio from this event without me interjecting every few minutes. It's kind of long, but if this episode sparked your interest, I think you'll find the full event worth listening to. And I hope all my interjections and blah blah here help you understand the full raw event better. But for now, we move on to... Addressing land conflict, tenure security, and land rights. This is another one we've addressed here before. Indigenous and traditional communities tend to have a strong connection to their land. Studies have shown they usually, not always of course, but usually maintain their forest and want to keep it. But their legal rights to the forests are often in limbo. That leaves them vulnerable to speculators and also less willing to invest too much in the forest. Uncertainty of of a land title, title and registration holds back a lot of action and activity. So land registration efforts need to be accelerated. Conflict resolution mechanisms need to be put in place. And very important, the uh, land uh, needs to be assigned to indigenous peoples and rural communities where they have a claim. We know that ownership and management of lands by indigenous peoples is positive correlated with land forest protection. Another thing to remember, People who live in developing countries, they buy stuff too. Which brings us to... Mobilizing demand for deforestation-free commodities in emerging markets. Remember earlier when we talked about certification? We learned that 21% of all palm oil is certified by the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or the RSPO. One reason it's not higher is that people still, for the most part, buy whatever is cheapest. So it's not worthwhile for producers to spend all that money getting certified. And that's even more so in developing countries. Kavita Prakashmani of WWF is working to change that. We might be at 21%, but the rest of that still goes into India and China and Malaysia. So we've now started looking at what we can do in the context of India, what we can do in the context of Malaysia itself to create the demand, to bring on companies, to find the business case which may not get certified palm oil but might at least get into better standards. In addition to this, we also need to keep an eye on domestic demand in emerging economies, something that came up in all three regional consultations. So it is not only those, but it is also the producing producing, companies. Uh, countries. Positive, this is feasible. We have more and more initiatives that um, that involve China and India, and this is something that we, you know, as a community need to engage and strengthen and partner with these players. We're getting near the end here, folks. So far, we've talked a lot about producers and consumers, but what about investors? That brings up our next priority area. Redirecting finance towards uh, deforestation-free supply chain. This is something we cover a lot on Bionic Planet, and it's the core of what we cover at Ecosystem Marketplace. Investors are still backing the bad actors, and they'll continue to do so until they realize that environmental bad actors are also financial bad risks. But they'll only realize that if we all hold the bad actors accountable and support the good ones. We've seen some progress on this front over the past year. With HSBC doing the right thing and manning up to some investments that led to deforestation and pulling the plug. You can learn more about that in an article I wrote for Ecosystem Marketplace called Why HSBC's Recent Response to Greenpeace Really Is a Very Big Deal. 
And I link to that in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 22 at bionic-planet.com. We're also seeing governments like Norway stepping up with finance for sustainable forest management. Uh, We're recognizing that um, it is market mechanisms that have driven some of the deforestation over these past decades. And we want to use those same market forces to drive reforestation or forest restoration uh, and preservation of forests. That's Stina Rexton of Norway's International Climate and Forest Initiative. She's helping to launch a new fund together with the global environment facility Unilever and IDH, which is a Dutch sustainable trade initiative. Um, We're so far the single biggest contributor to the fund. It's a 400 million US dollar fund, uh, blended finance. So essentially, um, we want to use the fund to redirect finance flows in agribusiness in a greener way. The fund um, basically works in two ways. Uh, It encourages jurisdictions to up their standards by um, having to become eligible for the fund. So we approve jurisdictions for the fund. And um, it also um, helps mitigate some of the risk for forward-leaning private sector actors that want to, want to invest in a, in a greener way. Um, so it's $400 million, but um, the ratio private-public money is... Um, is uh, one in four, so it's 1.6 billion US dollars of private money for the 400 million of blended finance. But that's just a sneeze in a hurricane compared to the $55 trillion global economy. We have trillions in agricultural finance, but at the moment it is not, you know, not, not all of it is used in the sustainable way. The overwhelming majority is not. If we compare this to actually, you know, sustainable uh, finance and initiative, it is minuscule compared to baseline or gray finance as we call it. Um, so it is very important to shift and redirect these financial, these financial streams and here new finance, new government levers, redirecting of subsidies and impact finance can have a very important role to redirect the streams of finance. But finance doesn't flow without transparency. And that brings us to... And finally, last but not least, uh, is data. We need to improve quality and quantity, and we need to do better in sharing uh, supply chain data. This is where I come in. You know, I already mentioned supply change. That's supply-change.org. And we did another episode, episode 11, focused on a platform called Trace. That's T-R-A-S-E, which lets you trace soybeans from specific municipalities in Brazil to ports around the world. There are plenty of other efforts, and Nicole Pasricha of Rainforest Alliance outlined one that they're participating in. The Accountability Framework Initiative um, was created by a consortium of NGOs, of which we are one, and this is in direct response to these 2020 commitments. 
The accountability framework is not in and of itself a standard or a certification. Instead, it is trying to align definitions and norms, for example, concepts like forests or zero deforestation, to help companies effectively navigate this landscape of existing implementation tools and also to ensure comparability and accountability across supply chains. That might sound boring and wonky, but the whole issue of comparability is critical. Because if you can't compare what different countries, companies, and counties are doing, you can't reject or, better yet, reform the bad guys and reward the good. Remember Ignacio Gavilan of the Consumer Goods Forum? He pointed out that member firms often don't even know how much soy they used. So his group created a solution. In order to help the members, we developed what is called the Soy Ladder. It's a soy footprint mechanism that uh, you can find in our web um, It's a very simple tier approach to understand your supply chain uh, and how much soy do you have on it. So my ask goes to those companies beyond the Consumer Goods Forum to use it, to do a materiality assessment and understand how much soy do you have. Because you might be driving deforestation in these areas without knowing it. Ignacio Gavilan wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, which is a bit different than most episodes. I usually like to dive deep into an issue, but this time we kept it pretty high level. I hope to revisit all of these activities in more detail. And if you think that would be of value, be sure to help me out by sharing Bionic Planet with friends and giving me a good rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access podcasts. You can also help by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. That's bionic-planet.com, where you can show your appreciation for as little as $1 per month. If today's show sparked your curiosity about these 10 priority areas, be sure to download episode 23 as well. Or better yet, read the full report, which is called Commodities and Forests Agenda 2020, 10 Priorities to Remove Tropical Deforestation from Commodity Supply Chains. You can find a link to it at tfa2020.org or at climatefocus.com or in the show notes to today's show. As I mentioned before, episode 23 of Bionic Planet will contain the full audio from the Climate Week session that I harvested for this. If you're a paid patron, I will not be charging for episode 23, rather just uploading that as a public service. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Thanks for listening.